That's right. We got to see the gospel presented through baptism. We got to worship in song. Our church is ready. We are ready. We have been in a series these last nine weeks. Believe it or not, it's been nine weeks, kind of a long series, but it's been a summer series. It's been a great series. And the series has been entitled The Christ-Centered Church. And we've been walking through all sorts of, of areas in the church and where Christ can be glorified. And we've realized a lot of things in this series, but I hope, and as I study the scriptures, and I hope that I've been able to communicate this well, that the church, the people of God, exist to glorify God. Amen? We exist at Northwest Baptist Church to glorify Christ to be on mission for him, not for ourselves, but on him. So we, we've walked through a bunch of different passages of scripture, a bunch of different topics in which God lays out in his word, but in the great commission to be on mission for him is a church that proclaims the gospel. It's a, it's a church that has life on life discipleship, and it's a church that is on mission. In the Great Commission, we're called to go, we're called to baptize, and we're called to teach to obey. And those three things we looked at at the beginning, but if we don't have the Holy Spirit in power, it means nothing to be a church on mission. And so we need the, the thought of the Holy Spirit. And then we walk through five attributes of a church on mission, of what it looks like for the heart of a church to be glorifying Christ by what they do, who they are. We looked at worship as an attribute of a church that is Christ-centered. We looked at prayer as an attribute of a church that's Christ-centered. We looked at community and gathering together to encourage one another as an attribute of a Christ-centered church. And last week, we looked at the Word of God and upholding the Word of God as it is written as the very Word of God. And this morning, we look at the final attribute of a Christ-centered church, and it is love in action. Love in action. Over the years of ministry, I've focused on this attribute. I've never really known what to call it. I've called it action or response or sometimes called being the church, be the church. But when you look at the word love, it is an action word. Love is acting upon. It is, it is action in itself in the word the bible describes this word as something much deeper than just a feeling but as an invoking an action first corinthians 13 the the love chapter you guys have may have heard this from a wedding or somewhere that is read but it says love is patient and kind love does not envy or boast it is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not re rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. And when we see this 
in 1 Corinthians, we see that love is doing something. It is producing something. It, that's why I've called it love in action. So before we, we begin this morning and we read our passage, I want to answer this question. And I, I actually want you to ask the question to yourself. And then I want you to answer it. So if that means to write it down in your notes, write it down. But I want you to think about this question. The question is, what does it mean to love? What does it really mean to love? Write down one word or think about one word. It's the first thing that comes into your mind. What does it mean to love? Love, And hopefully you'll be able to answer that question at the end if you don't have an answer. But I want you to write that down at the beginning. And I want you to ponder that this week as you think through this sermon, as you think through what the Word of God says about love and action. Let's look at the text this morning as we turn to 1 John chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verse 14, beginning in verse 14. So, Page 1022, at the end of the Word of God here, 1 John is close to Revelation, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Jude, and Revelation. At the end of your Bible, the Pew Bible in front of you, 1022, if you do not have the Word of God, we encourage you to open that up and look at it with us this morning. Thank you for standing in honor of the reading of God's Word, 1st John chapter 3, verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. It's the word of God. You may be seated. We're going to pray And ask the Spirit of God to change our hearts and minds according to the Word of God. Father, we ask that this morning that you would bring peace and joy. And Father, that you would encourage us to walk in the way that you've walked. Father, you've shown us what love means by Christ and the gospel and the good news that our God loves us so much that he would be willing to send his son to die on the cross for us. And Father, we can only understand love because God is love. And we ask this morning, Father, that you would convict our hearts where we need convicting. That you would encourage us and where we need encouragement. That you would show us, Father, by your Holy Spirit, what you want us to hear And to respond as you want us to respond according to your word, which is truth. Lord, help us to hear from you this morning in the word of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Well, summer is, school has started, fall has kind of almost here, but not yet here. The summer is winding down. That means, for some of you, that means the end of lake season, right? Who's had fun this year at the lake, right? We, we live in Oklahoma, the land of many lakes. And one of the things that um, I realized early on as a young person was my parents showed me the gospel in whatever we were doing. They taught me to see teachable moments even on the lake. And one of the most important and impactful gospel lessons for my life was actually growing up on the lake. If you've been here before with us, you'll know that we had a 1976 trisonic boat that we sunk two times, not once, but twice, Well, we got it back working again, and uh, we would pull this large yellow tube. We would call it tubing, and uh, this 1976 boat, we would push all the way down and go as fast as we could on this tube. And if if you know anything about boating and tubing, when you turn, the tube slingshots, right? It slingshots out of the wake, And depending on what kind of waves you're hitting, how choppy the water is, and how good you are on the tube, you either stay on or you get off, right? And so this this we would do for hours. We're talking about hours upon hours as young people. We would do this with our friends, our cousins, and our family Members, But one of the rules was that if you fell off the tube, you came into the boat. It was somebody else's turn to go. Now, sometimes if we had many, many people on the boat, you would wait a long, long time to get on this tube. And so you can imagine, parents, if you have children, you can imagine when someone gets on the tube and the first turn they fall off the tube within seconds and they've been waiting for an hour, you can imagine the tears and the agony of defeat in a child's life only to fall off in mere seconds. But one day, my mom was on the boat. She was driving the boat. And she saw someone fall off very quickly. And she yelled, Grace. Grace, I give you grace. Now that word sometimes gets a bit overused. But it is unmerited favor. It means you do not deserve it. I am giving you favor that you do not deserve. And guess what? We would begin using this terminology with people who fell off the tube. The next person, their opportunity was to yell, Grace, I give you my turn. Even though you are undeserving of that. And that's what John is saying here in this passage. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you know what love is because of the grace, the unmerited favor in which God has shown you. 
You understand love because you have seen the gospel displayed in front of you through Jesus Christ. You see, we can say, I love you, over and over again until we are blue in the face. But it is only when we act upon that love, not only in word, but also in deed with one another, that we show people the gospel. You see, extending people the same grace that Christ extended to us is a type of love that never grows weary, it never runs dry, and it's always greater than we can ever imagine. That's why the church is so beautiful. It's made up of sinners. It's made up of people who make mistakes in this broken world, and yet it is made up of people who understand the love that God has given them, and they offer one another grace in that love. It is a beautiful picture of the gospel. You see, the extravagant love in action was given to us through Christ's death upon the cross. And now we love, not because we have to, but because we want to. See, a church that shows extravagant love in action is a church that I want to be a part of. Amen? NWBC is that church, a church that loves through, not only through word, but also in deed. This is a key attribute of a Christ-centered church. First John, just to give you a bit of a background on the writer, John is the apostle, one of the closest apostles with Jesus. Jesus uh, in his, the gospel of John, he says, um, the one who Jesus loved, right? He was close to Christ. And he writes this first John. So if, if you ever have a new believer, you read John, the gospel of John. Why? Because he wrote that so that you may have eternal life. You may trust that Christ is the Messiah. You may trust that he is the one who has come to save and that in him you may have eternal life. And that the book of First John you read... For the assurance of salvation. In 1 John 5.13, he says this. I write these things to you who believe. So you already believe in the name of the Son of God. That you may know that you have eternal life. It's the assurance of knowing that you are a child of God. And we'll get to this in a minute, but I, I have to tell it to you. It is that assurance which actually causes you to love. This book comes at a time when there is some false teaching, some Gnosticism. Also, false teaching is rampant. And John writes the, to the church so that they may understand what authentic Christianity looks like. So in this book, he gives multiple examples of how you know that you are saved. Someday we'll, we'll preach through the whole book of John. It's a fascinating study of authentic Christianity, what it looks like to be a Christian. 
And some of these things are outlined throughout the book. Confession of sin. Authentic Christians confess sin. Authentic Christians live in obedience to what Christ has commanded. Authentic Christians do not love the world. Authentic Christians love one another. This is what he says. You can know that you're saved by the response to the gospel that you have received. This is a great book if you've ever struggled with that in your own life. It addresses those questions. And we're, we're landing with loving one another here this morning. In verse 11, in the immediate context, it says, For this is the message, 1 John three eleven. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous? Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. You see, even since the beginning, since creation, God has been commanding people to love one another. Even the discourse with Cain, the son, the firstborn son of Adam, God has a, a conversation with this man in the beginning of Genesis in which he says, Cain, sin is crouching at your door. He's wanting Cain to love his brother. All of the law, the Old Testament is summed up by Christ as love God and love your neighbor. Throughout God's story, he's showing us what love really looks like. And then he shows us the ultimate love of Christ when he comes down and gives his life on the cross. John 15, 12 says this, this is my commandment. This is Jesus speaking. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And then he begins here in verse 14 in 1 John 3. He says, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. This is our first point this morning. Love is a mark of authentic Christians. Love is a mark of an authentic Christian. Love is a mark of an authentic church. The people of God who gather together. This is a distinct mark. And as he says, those who have passed out of death and into life. John uses the same terminology in John 5.24. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word, and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. We love one another in God's church. You see, this love confirms our faith. John 13, 34, Jesus said, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. We pass 
from death into life at salvation. Some translations like to say, you crossed over from death to life. I understand that, that principle of a crossover from my basketball days. You go from one side to the other, right? You're crossover. You go from death to life. You don't stay over here in the death side. You go across to the life. You have passed, and you know that you have passed if you genuinely love. The Bible is very clear that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And Christ, by his grace, has made us cross over into life. Ephesians 2, 4 says this, but, but, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. What a beautiful picture right there of crossing over from death to life. We deserve death because of sin, and yet Christ in his grace and what he showed us, the love that he showed us by the gospel has made us cross over into life. Salvation then changes things. It changes who you are, and it also changes what you do. We should love differently than when we were dead because now we're alive. Guess what happens if we continue to stay dead? We hate. The opposite of love is hate. That's why he says in verse 15, everyone who hates his brothers is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Now he's referring back to the story here of Cain and Abel, both sons of Adam. They're offering up to God. Both are worshiping God. They're together worshiping God and sacrificing to him but God receives Abel's sacrifice because it's his first and it's his best. And he does not receive Cain's offering. So instead of obeying God, the next time, Cain becomes jealous and angry until the point where he kills his brother. Jesus equates hatred with murder in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. And he's referring here to if you've crossed over from death to life, how can you hate again? If you have been saved by the grace of God, how can you live in anger and hatred toward one another? Authentic believers love and extend grace because they know how much grace has been extended to you. This is not always easy. I'm going to say that. But Christ's death on the cross was not easy. The grace in which God bestowed upon us was not easy. 
So let me encourage you, church, that anytime it feels hard to love your brother or sister in Christ, whether it be me or another church member or your spouse or your children, remind yourself of the great undeserved favor of God upon your life and be consumed with Christ's love instead of a lack of love for someone else or a lack of love that someone showed you. Verse 16, by this we know love. So how do we know love? That he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. This is point number two, that Gospel teaches God's church to love. The gospel in itself, Christ and what he did for us, actually teaches us. How do we know what love is? We know it by, because of what Christ did. He laid down his life for us. Therefore, we ought to lay down our life for our brothers. The gospel teaches the church to love. Again, when it's about Christ, when we're focused upon Christ, when we're focused upon glorifying Christ, guess what happens? He teaches us to love one another. We know love because Christ was willing to take our place on the cross. Not only did he come down to rescue us, but he took the punishment for sin upon himself. 1 John 4.19, John goes again and talks about this again. In chapter 4, he says this, We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. John makes it clear, and it is very clear, that the gospel teaches someone to love. We have crossed over from death to life. Therefore, we love not on the basis of of that we are good or that we should do good or the person we are loving is good, but because Christ loved us because of his grace and mercy. So what happens when the church comes together and reflects the love that Christ has? What happens? It's amazing. That's what happens. It's incredible. There is an overwhelming willingness to set aside our own thoughts, our own feelings, our own desires, and to look to the interests of others. They lay down their life for their brother or their sister in Christ. It looks like people being willing to go out of their way to help other people. It it looks like going out of your circle of friends to talk to someone who's sitting by themselves at church. It, It looks like people who serve one another. It looks like people giving of themselves, of their time and their resources and their money to one another. It's in people encouraging one another. Again, this is so countercultural. It's so against what the world teaches. Most often people think, what can I get out of church? It's a consumer mentality. 
What can I get from the people of God? What can I get from the pastor? Rather than saying, what can I give to God's church? What can I give to my Sunday school? What can I give to the people in need? And yet when the gospel is understood and someone says, I have been saved by grace through faith and have assurance of salvation, it changes things. And once the fear of hell, once the fear of damnation, of eternal fire is removed, guess what? Those people are free to love like Christ This is the assurance of salvation. Once you understand you are a child of God and have crossed over from death to life, guess what? You're going to love in extravagant ways. How can you freely love if you're still wrestling with if you're saved? The established church during Martin Luther's day thought that they could control people by holding their salvation over them. Well, if you do these things, then then you're really saved. But if you backslide, and if you don't do these things, then you might be in trouble. Martin Luther called this the damnable doctrine of doubt. He said, yes, being afraid of judgment will produce a surface-level adherence. He said, but underneath that thin veneer of obedience will rush a river of fear and pride and self-interest. The only way to develop real love for God is to have fear removed. Love for God, he says, grows only in the assurance of the love of God. Does that make sense? The only real way you can truly love is if you know God loves you. You stand in faith in the gospel. The only real way you can truly love someone else is you stand in the faith knowing how much this God loves you. One of the pictures of this is, and I think is this, is is Jesus, and he tells this parable. He tells the parable of the unforgiving servant, and he says, a king comes, and he's settling his accounts with those who have debt. And one man, one of his servants, the king's servants, owes an exorbitant amount of debt, 10,000 talents to be exact. A talent equals 20 years' wages, So that would be 200,000 years worth of work for a normal person. I read somewhere that it was about $7 billion in today's money. $7 billion. This is what this guy owes the king. He has to pay this debt. So he cannot pay, obviously. And now he's before the king, and the king says, you can't pay my debt, I need to collect. It's time. And now his, him, his family, everything he has are going to be sold to just pay a portion of this debt. He's probably going to live a life in prison, shackles and chains. He's deserving of that. He, he accru- accrued the debt. And he gets on his knees and he says to the king, have mercy on me. So the king, being gracious and merciful, forgives all the debt. 
Your debt is forgiven. You have been set free. And he has just experienced this gospel-like love in his heart and his mind. He can't even wrap his arms around that. But the same man, this man who has just experienced this, he goes to someone who owes him money. Now, the person that owes him money is about 100 days wages. In our, in our days, time would be about $11,000, significant amount of money. But nothing like the $7 billion. And the man who's been forgiven billions and billions of dollars begins choking the man who owes him $11,000. And he throws him in jail. And the king gets word of this. And I'm going to read from the scriptures in Matthew 18. The king says, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. You see, I think what's happening here is the servant experiences the grace of God. He experiences the love of God. But guess what? He doesn't believe it. He doesn't stand in the love of God. He doesn't hold fast to it. He thinks he has to do more. He thinks he can pay the king back. He doesn't stand in the grace that God has given him. Why would he choke somebody? They owe $11,000 and he's been forgiven $7 billion. The only reason is he doesn't believe. That his debt is free. This is why it's important to not only stay, understand what Christ has done for us, but also stand in that by faith. You are forgiven, you are loved, you are set free, so now you can live. In a love that holds no boundaries. And only in this can we really lay down our life for other people. So I, I, I set it all up basically for this, these two verses. Verse 17, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet he closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but only, but in deed and in truth. The last point this morning is love is action. In deed and in truth. Love is action. We can talk about how we love all day long. But until we actually act in love, we are just patting ourselves on the back. 
saying, well, we, we love these people. We genuinely love them. I've seen love in action from this church in mighty ways, whether it be helping new people find their way, giving so that other people can go on mission, caring for the needs of people, visiting those who are sick and those who are in need. I see people giving of themselves to children, to children's ministry and the tech team and the greeting ministry, helping keep up our facilities, volunteering in community advance, or just encouraging one another. And they are giving of themselves in love toward other people. Why? Because Christ has loved them. And now they can extend that extravagant love to others. John knows that it's easier for us to talk about loving people than it is to actually give of ourselves to someone else. I know personally that I, I'm definitely not perfect. And I know as being your pastor that everyone in this room is definitely not perfect as well. But guess what? When people know that you love them, it covers a lot of your faults. I cling to this verse often as a father as a husband, as a pastor, knowing that I will mess up and I just need to love well. 1 Peter 4.8 says this, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Love not only in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. I ask you at the beginning of the sermon to write down what love meant. And at the end of the sermon, I'm going to ask you to write down the same thing. What is God calling you to do to love someone in this room, someone in your family, someone in your workplace, what are you going to do about it? How are you going to put love into action? In a few weeks, and we're rolling this out soon, but in a few weeks, we're going to have an opportunity to have 13 or 14 teams go out into the city and show love to people. It may be over here at Northwest Class and fixing up some of the outside landscaping. It may be going to the neighborhood and handing out popsicles. It may be handing out cookies in Linwood. I don't know. A lot of people have dreamed up some big ideas, and I just kind of walk with them. But guess what? You have an opportunity to love through action, to be a part of being on mission at Northwest Baptist Church. And that's what it's about. We can come and listen and talk about love. We can come and listen to the gospel. We can understand where we stand in the grace of God and our eternal destiny in our life. But if we do not put that into action, 
if we do not go back into the lost and dying world and tell them about the good news of the gospel and show them the gospel, guess what? We're not really loving people. We're just talking about love. Last week I saw 40 of our people give of themselves and their time and cook, prepare a meal and be there to welcome teachers, over 200 teachers. I want to be a part of that. That's love in action. That's a church that rests in the gospel of grace and responds in love toward people and one another. I was, I was driving last week to church and I am coming from Hefner Parkway, I-44. And one of our people is driving on the street from 23rd Street. And they're at the stoplight. And literally, it was like two seconds. It's a two-second deal. They're literally pulled up to the stoplight. The husband reaches down into the into the car. I don't I didn't know what was going on. He reaches down in the car, pulls out a sack of lunch. He hands the guy a sack of lunch on the side of the road. You've seen him every time you walk by the church or as you drive by the church. Pulls out a sack of lunch, hands it to the guy. Literally, they, they're going, they stop, pulls out a sack of lunch and just keeps on going. I thought to myself, man, that was cool. That was cool. Showing this person love as we walk, as we go to gather in the gospel of grace. Oftentimes it's not huge deals that we can show love to one another. Just small words of encouragement. Doing things for people that they may not expect. Let's be a people that love one another well that love people that don't know Christ well because the gospel has taught us what it means to love. Let's be a people that stand firm in our faith, understanding the grace that God has given us and give that grace to one another.